This morning, we continue this study through the book of Philippians. It's a letter written by Paul in prison. It's written to a group of people that he loved dearly as a church that he helped plant 10 years prior to that. They're excited to hear from him. They went to the mailbox, and there was a letter from a person they really, really care about. It's like you and I receiving a letter, a handwritten letter from someone that we dearly care about. And so he's given this instruction to them, and today he continues this, this letter to them, and someone's standing up, they're reading it, and they're hearing from Paul, and they're leaning in, and, and he has some good words to say. And those words that he spoke 2,000 years ago are relevant today. He reminds them that there's only a certain amount of time that they have to live, and, and we know we only have a certain amount of time to live. He reminds them that there's no do-overs. We can't go back and redo third and fourth and fifth grade or our seventh and eighth or ninth year of life. We have to make our lives count. We have to take every second, every minute, every hour that God has given us and live it to the fullest capacity that he's created us to. He's reminding them that there comes a time where we need to make a stand for what's most important to us as Christ followers. And he's reminding them that we should be all in in our walks with the Lord. The same is true as the reminder that he gave to the church at Philippi, the same is true today. We need to make our lives count. We're just not in it to get participation trophies. We're in it to win the prize, to strive as though there's a finish line, and to run with all we have. Yet it goes against the philosophy in our world today. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets a ribbon. And the reality is this, as we get to the end, the Bible tells us if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, by his grace, we're saved. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. But there are rewards that come. There are these crowns that we receive, and in turn, we take them and give them back to God. There are prizes. There is a reason that we're running this race, to make Jesus look good and to advance the gospel. Yet today, this passage is full of imagery. It's full of ways that you and I can say, wow, I have some work to do. Or you know what? I got this one down and I need to stay at it. We need to make our lives count. Grab your Bibles and we're going to see how we do that and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 27 through 30 today. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. But turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 27 to 30. Stand with me as we read God's word. And you can join in on that reading too. Verses 27 to 30. Would you stand up as we read God's word? Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. Can everyone stand as we read God's word? Let's read it out loud together. Ready, read. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You may have a seat. We see right away in this part of the letter that's inspired in errant word of God, that's as relevant today as it was over 2,000 years ago, we're reminded that you and I 
who call ourselves followers of, of Jesus, people of the way, believers, whatever terminology you want to use, whoever is a Christ follower, born again, we should conduct ourselves or yourself in a worthy manner. Look again at verse 27. Look how he speaks here. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, if I come to see you, if I, if I remain in prison, if I die, it doesn't matter whether you see me again or don't see me, whether I die or don't die, whatever happens to me and whatever happens to us, know this, please conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. The bottom line is this, as we hear today, I might not see you again, Paul says, but that doesn't change anything because you are followers of Jesus. It's a very interesting word that he uses here. He uses the word conduct. Now, it's a word that means this in the original. The word conduct, he says, conduct yourself. It it carries the idea to live as citizens of your origin. In other words, to conduct yourselves, to live as citizens of your home, of your city, of where you belong. And he's speaking to this group of Rome citizens, and they knew the laws of the land. Now, he looks at them, says, you understand what it needs, what it means to live as a citizen of Rome, but I want you to live and conduct yourself as citizens of your home. And the home is heaven. Your, your, your God is Jesus. So he's looking at them and they're hearing this letter and he says, make sure you, make sure you live in such a way that you reflect your origin and your home. Make sure you look like those that go to heaven. Make sure your life matches up with Jesus. In other words, live like you are from heaven. We are children of God, he reminds them. We should think about this a lot. Because the same thing he said here is true for us today. Whether you're born again in three or born again in a hundred and three. The way you and I live directly impacts not only this community and your family and your legacy, but it could be the very reason an unconvinced person in Jesus, an unsaved person, a, a seeker, it could be the very reason. They look at your life and they say, wow, what's different about you? What is it that allows you to love like that? How can you forgive like that? How, how is that possible to stand in the midst of the struggle and trust in God? So when the world looks at us, they say, wow, you're not where, from where I'm from. There's something different about conduct yourselves in a fashion as though you're a citizen of heaven. So they look at you and they're drawing conclusions. Paul's saying, now listen, Church of Philippi and Grace Community today, I'm saying to you, what conclusions are people drawing about the way we conduct their life? When they look at our marriages, what are they saying? Wow, I wonder if they're a Christ follower. There's no way they're a Christ follower. As they watch you in the factory, as they, they look at your generosity, as they, they read your social media posts, as they, they examine closely because they're your boss and you're the employee, your work ethic, as they see how you love other people or don't love other people, what conduct are they seeing you live out? Is it matching your home? And your home is, the Bible says, we're aliens here. We're strangers. We're just passing through, but make a difference. But our home is heaven. Paul's saying, does your conduct match your origin? Wow, what a challenge. Why is he saying that? Because people are watching. And the very way you love your wife, the very way you speak about your husband, 
the very way you train up your child so that when he is old, that they will not turn from the truth. The very things that you do as a parent, the way you honor your mother and father as children, those things the world is watching. They're, they're, they're seeing how you conduct your life. Why? Because they know there's this emptiness inside of them that needs to be filled. And they don't know what it is, but you're showing them that it's Jesus. So he says, hey, whether I come, whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a fashion that's worthy of the gospel. Think about that for a second. It matters how you and I live. It matters because we're the family of God. It matters like... The, the way you represent, the way you individually represent Christ impacts the whole family. It does. It matters. It matters how you live out in public because if you're a Christ follower and I'm a Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. So the way you and I live is a direct reflection on our family and it's the family of God. So the way you live when you have your blue crew shirt on, when you're not on a blitz and you're just living in the community, The way you respond when you say, I'm a Christ follower and I got a fight club sticker on the back of my vehicle. When people see you live out your life when you're driving. If you flip the bird, you're not following Christ. The way you live, you're giving us who call ourselves Christ followers, Paul is saying, a bad rap by the way you live. It matters how you live. Why? Because the world is watching. And listen, the world needs Jesus Christ. So it's 24-7, every second of every minute, every minute of every hour, every hour of every day, every day of every month, every month of every year, Paul says, conduct yourselves in a worthy fashion. So when people see your lives, they draw this conclusion. There's something different about them. Something is uniquely different they must be a follower of Christ. Not only live, but live in a worthy manner. I love this word because if you break this word down, worthy means having enough good qualities to be considered important or useful. It also carries this idea of weighing someone or something to match its value. We say things like it's worth more than that. It's worth, she's worth her weight. He's worth his weight. He's worth it. It's the idea of taking our lives and putting it on a scale. Picture, if you can, a a piece of wood with two chains and two buckets on. It's the idea of laying your life every day on one side of the scale and on the other side, does your life match the gospel that you proclaim to believe in? Are you weighty enough? Is there enough value to the way you live that it matches Jesus? that it matches the sacrifice that he paid. So Paul says, hey, live in a worthy way. Let me give you the best way I can explain this. When I was a younger kid, we spent a lot of time in VBSs, much like many of you have. And I can remember one VBS that we would go to. It was Evangel Baptist Church in, in Hagerstown, Maryland. And they would always have what they called penny drives. And so At the beginning of Vacation Bible School, if you don't know what VBS is, Vacation Bible School, they would have, hey, we have this project. We're going to send this money to this mission. We're going to support this cause for Christ. And so they, they would have boys on one side and girls on the other. And then they would bring out these scales. And these scales had buckets on them. And you literally would bring your pennies. 
And so whatever side weighed the most, the gift was this. At the end of vacation Bible school on Friday night, at the closing program, if the boys won or the girls won, they got popsicles. Now, popsicle was a big deal back when I was a kid. So you wanted to win. And so you know what you did? You would search your house. I remember taking our Ford Country Squire station wagon and pulling back the seats and finding pennies. We would collect our pennies. And I remember the day, I'm old enough to remember, maybe some of you do too, you would take pop bottles back and return them for two cents. Anybody remember those days? And so I would scour the lots and and the places where pop bottles were. And so we would bring pennies. And so the offering would come and the director of, of vacation Bible school would stand there and they would hold on to the scale. Boys on one side, girls on the other. And as a, a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, an 8-year-old, you were clued into this because you wanted a popsicle. And so you would bring money and one side. And, and I remember I would dig and I would try to find my pennies and mom and dad would try to be, be generous enough, give to my sister and give to me and give to my other sister. And I always say, hey, there's three of them and one of me, balance it out. I remember just, come on. <laughs> Got three of them going forward and one of me. But I remember just, it was an exciting moment because someone would walk up and then poof, the scale would go like this. And, and the, the girls would come up and would go like this. And, And the director would hold it there. And you didn't know who was going to win. But I remember this guy. His name was Jimmy Sox. You never forget that name. I don't know if his grandpa collected pennies. I I, I don't know if he had penny banks and pig banks. I don't don't, don't know. But it it was like, I was just glad Jimmy was a boy. (laughs) I'm dead serious. And and like, he would wait right to the end. And he would see the scales. And Jimmy would get up and... He was heavy because of these pennies. And I was saying, Jimmy's going to do it. And he would reach into his pockets and he had like rows of pennies. Like, man, dude, I'm glad you're a dude. And, and, and he would drop the money and the scales would poof. And the boys would win. Three years straight because of Jimmy Socks. And he grew up and got old and left us and we lost the next three years. But Paul is saying, live your life in such a way that it balances out. It, it, it's as weighty as the scale on the other side. Live in such a way that, that, that you matter, that your life matters. Our lives will match the gospel we proclaim to believe in, Paul is saying. Do they? Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I pursue purity. I don't speak slanderous of others. I don't gossip. I have a daily life with Christ and I pray daily to him. I support and I love others. I forgive people. I care for them. Does the way you live your life match the gospel that you claim to believe in? You know, when you see that happen, when you see someone willing to die for a cause, and even more important, to live for a cause daily when other people don't, they are weighty. They are worthy of the gospel they proclaim to believe in. When you see people stand in a way because they believe in the cause, you never forget it. In light of the fact that this weekend and tomorrow is Independence Day, some of us, we just kind of 
bust right through Independence Day. And we don't think much of it because it's been so long. Like, that was 18th century. We really don't know the value or the weight, the worthiness of men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Some of us aren't even aware. We just know it's July 4th and it's firecrackers go off. But the reality is this. There were a group of men who who took their lives and they were worthy of the cause. They said, you know what? I believe in this, that I'll lay my life down. Here's an example of what I'm trying to describe today. Listen to what it took for the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. What kind of men were the 56 signers who adopted the Declaration of Independence and who by their signing committed an act of treason over crown? To each of you, the names Franklin, Adams, Hancock, and Jefferson are most familiar as household words. Most of us, however, know nothing of the other signers. Who they were or who were they? What happened to them? I imagine that many of you are somewhat surprised at the names not there. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Patrick Henry. All were elsewhere. Ben Franklin was the only really old man. 18 were under 40. Three were in their 20s. Of the 56, almost half, 24 were judges and lawyers. 11 were merchants, nine were landowners and farmers, and the remaining 12 were doctors, ministers, and politicians. With only a few exceptions, such as Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, these were men of substantial property. All but two had families. The vast majority were men of education and standing in their communities. They had economic security as few men had in the 18th century. Each had more to lose from the revolution than he had to gain by it. John Hancock, one of the richest men in America, already had a price of 500 pounds on his head. He signed in enormous letters so that his majesty could now read his name without glasses and could now double the reward. Ben Franklin Riley noted, Indeed, we must all hang together. Otherwise, we shall most assuredly hang separately to our deaths. Fat Benjamin Harrison of Virginia told tiny Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts, with me, my hanging will be all over in a minute, but you, you will be dancing on air an hour after I'm gone. These men knew what they risked. The penalty for treason was death by hanging. And remember, a great British fleet was already at anchor in New York Harbor. These were sober men. They were no dreamy-eyed intellectuals or draft card burners here. They were far from hot-eyed fanatics yammering for an explosion. They simply asked for the status quo. It was change they resisted. It was equality with the mother country they desired. It was taxation with representation they sought. They were all conservatives, yet they all rebelled. It was principle, not property, that had brought these men to Philadelphia. Two of them became presidents of the United States. Seven of them became state governors. One died in office as vice president of the United States. Several will go on to be U.S. senators. One, the richest man in America in 1828, founded the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. 
One, a delegate from Philadelphia, was the only real poet, musician, and philosopher of the signers. Though the resolution was formally adopted July 4, it was not until July 8 that two of the states authorized their delegates to sign. And it was not until August the 2nd that the signers met in Philadelphia to actually put the names to their declaration. William Ellery, delegate from Rhode Island, was curious to see the signers' faces as they committed this supreme act of personal courage. He saw some men sign quickly, but in no face was he able to discern real fear. Stephen Hopkins, Ellery's colleague from Rhode Island, was a man past 60. As he signed with a shaking hand, he declared, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. Most glorious service. Even before the list was published, the British marked down every member of Congress suspected of having put his name to treason. All of them became the objects of vicious manhunts. Some were taken. Some, like Jefferson, had narrow escapes. All who had property or families near British strongholds suffered. Francis Lewis, New York delegate, saw his home plundered and his estates in which is now Harlem completely destroyed by British soldiers. Mrs. Lewis was captured and treated with great brutality, though she was later exchanged for two British prisoners through the efforts of Congress. She died from the effects of her abuse. William Floyd, another New York delegate, was able to escape with his wife and children across Long Island, Sound to Connecticut, where they lived as refugees without income for seven years. When they came home, they found a devastated ruin. Phillips Livingstone had all his great holdings in New York confiscated and his family driven out of their home. Livingstone died in 1778, still working in Congress for the cause. Lewis Morris, the fourth New York delegate, saw all of his timber, crops, and livestock taken. For seven years, he was barred from his home and family. John Hart of Trenton, New Jersey, risked his life to return home to see his dying wife. Hessian soldiers rode after him, and he escaped in the woods. While his wife lay on her deathbed, the soldiers ruined his farm and wrecked his homestead. Hart 65 slept in caves and woods as he was hunted across the countryside. When at long last, emaciated by hardship, he was able to sneak home. He found his wife had already been buried and his 13 children taken away. He never saw them again. He died a broken man in 1779 without ever finding his family again. Dr. John Witherspoon, a signer, was president of the College of New Jersey, later called Princeton, the British-occupied town of Princeton, and billeted troops in the college. They trampled and burned the finest college library in the country. Judge Richard Stockton, another New Jersey delegate, had rushed back to his estate in an effort to evacuate his wife and children. The family found refuge with friends, but a Tory sympathizer betrayed them. Judge Stockton was pulled from bed in the night and brutally beaten by the arresting soldiers, thrown into a common jail. He was deliberately starved. Congress finally arranged for Stockton's parole, but his health was ruined. The judge was released as an invalid when he could no longer harm the British cause. He returned home to find his estate looted and did not live to see the triumph of the revolution. His family was forced to live off of charity. 
Robert Morse, merchant prince of Philadelphia, delegate and signer, met Washington's appeals and pleas for money year after year. He made and raised arms and provisions which made it possible for Washington to cross the Delaware at Trenton. In the process, he lost 150 ships at sea, bleeding his own fortune and credit almost dry. George Clymer, Pennsylvania signer, escaped with his family from his home, but their property was completely destroyed. Benjamin Rush from Pennsylvania was forced to flee to Maryland. As a heroic surgeon with the army, Rush had several narrow escapes. John Martin, a Tory in his views previous to the debate, lived in a strongly loyalist area of Pennsylvania. When he came out for independence, most of his neighbors and even some of his relatives ostracized him. He was a sensitive and troubled man, and many believe this action killed him. When he died in 1777, his last words to his tormentors were, Tell them that they will live to see the hour when they shall acknowledge it, the signing, to have been the most glorious service that has ever been rendered to my country. The list goes on. Edward Rutledge, Arthur Middleton, and Thomas Hayward Jr., the other three South Carolina signers were taken by the British and seized of Charleston. They were carried as prisoners of war to St. Augustine, Florida, where they were singled out as indignitaries. They were exchanged at the end for, in the war. The British, in the meantime, having completely devastated their large land holdings and estates. Thomas Nelson, signer of Virginia, was at the front of the command of the Virginia military forces with British General Charles Cornwallis in Yorktown, fire from 70 heaven Heavy American guns began to destroy Yorktown piece by piece. Lord Cornwallis and his staff moved to their headquarters. It was Nelson's home. While American cannonballs were making a shambles of the town, the governor, the house of Governor Nelson remained untouched. Nelson turned in rage to the American gunners and asked, why do you spare my home? They replied, sir, out of respect to you, Nelson cried, give me the cannon and fired on his own magnificent home, smashing it to bits. Nelson's sacrifice was not quite over. He had raised two million for the revolutionary cause by pledging his own estates. When the loans came due, a newer peacetime Congress refused to honor them and Nelson's property was forfeited. He was never reimbursed. He died impoverished a few years later at 50. Of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardships during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned, in each case with brutal treatment. Several lost wives, sons, or, and entire families. One lost his 13 children. Two wives were brutally treated. All were at one time or another the victim of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned. Yet not one defected or went back on his pledge word. Their honor and the nation they sacrificed so much to create is still intact today as the United States of America. You see, that's living. That's living in a way. That's conducting yourself in a way that's worthy of a cause 
So Paul is saying to this church at Philippi, and, and Jesus is saying to us today, does your life weigh as much as the gospel you proclaim to believe in? Do you balance the scales? If there's true conversion, then it will change the way you and I live. What are you living for today? Is there enough evidence in your life? Is there purity? Like there should be purity in your life. Do you have a heart for lost people? Are you seeking to save the lost? Is that a burning passion of yours? Is your life worthy, weighty to match the gospel that you proclaim to believe in? Does your worship match the gospel that you proclaim to believe in? We say all the time to people around us and to our kids, I expect more from you because I know the stock from which you come from. And Paul is saying, I expect the conduct of your life to be worthy, matching the weight of the gospel that you proclaim. He goes on as if that wasn't enough. Look what he says next in this passage. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand how? What's the word? Firm. In what kind of spirit? One spirit. Paul's looking at them. They're hearing from him in this letter. And he's telling them. He says, I want to see you stand firm in the gospel. What's this word firm mean? I love the metaphors that Paul uses. And he often uses, he uses military motif. He uses athletic motifs. This is a military motif. He says, I want to see you standing firm in what you believe. This idea of firm is shoulder to shoulder, back to back, swords held in the air. It carries the idea of defending your cause together at all costs. Not only does he say it here, but he said it to the church at Corinth. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you together. It's the idea of back to back, shoulder to shoulder, in one spirit in unity. It's a beautiful picture of a military motif. In fact, I want to try to describe it as best as I can. Hey, Jeff, why don't your row come right here? Clean down to Cindy. Just join me on the stage. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hey, Tyler Hoosier, why don't you join me too? Why don't you come up on stage? I'm gonna get eight of you up here. Let me, let, let me show you what this, this imagery is. Jeff, just stand right here and, and get three more people beside you. Just right beside him, facing this way. Tammy, you can come right in beside your hubby here and come in beside mom. And, okay, now the other, you come back to back. Melanie, you come and get against Jeff's back and you get on their back and... Cindy, you get behind right here. Now, here's the picture. It's, it's, it's standing firm. It's, it's the military motif. It's like shoulder to shoulder. Now, the, now you got a sword in your hand. Hold it up. Hold up. Sword. Left hand, right hand. It, it's, it's like if, if the attack comes, like, look, you got me. It's like, it's all you against me. And, 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 and if it goes to the flank, you turn this way. You turn. You got me. And if I'm coming this way, you, you, you got me. Back to back. You stay here. Tyler, stay with me. And, and you got their back. And so it's this picture of, I, I, can't, I can't get in there. Now, and you go in the lead and you move together. Jeff, you say, we're moving. So Jeff, you move this way. Everybody moves with you. Come on, move with them. Come on, move. 
Okay, okay. Now, 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 Cindy, we're moving this way. Everybody moves together. Move, move, move. It's standing firm. It's this picture of together. Like, like you can't get in here. Like, like, now, watch what happens. He says, stand firm in unity as one. But watch what happens if Jeff decides to go out on his own. Now, let me ask you something. Can, can we get him from behind? Oh, yeah. It's like, he, he, he's vulnerable. And here's what the enemy does. He likes to pull us away from community. They go, I, I, I don't need unity. I, I, I can stand on my own. And, and the enemy who's described as a lion in scripture is seeking to whom he may devour. And you know when lions attack, they attack when they're pulled away from the pack. Now, as a team, what do you want to do for him right now? What do you, what do you want to do? Like, well, let's go, let's go. Move with it. Don't lay him out there. <laughs> it's this idea, Cindy, can move, move, move. Come on, come on. Now, what happens if Cindy, Cindy pulls away? She pulls away. No? A team, you, you care for your teammates. What do you do? Get over here. All right, thank you. You can have a seat. Paul is saying that's the picture. Standing firm. You got the flank covered. You got the front covered. You got a back covered. You got her back covered. It's not trying to do it. And and unified, it means, you know what? I might not agree with this method right here, but listen, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna serve together. You know, I might choose to do this differently, but, but you know what? For the sake of unity and, and, and the sake, I'm going to love you and we're going to work. That's the picture what the church is supposed to look like. But you know what happens? Someone comes in and says, I, I don't agree with that. Like, and they start talking about that. And you know what happens? Disunity. And the church gets scattered. You know what happens when the church gets scattered? It gets eaten alive. And Paul's looking at this church. And he's saying, stand firm. Let your life be worthy, weighty. Conduct yourself in a fashion that matches your origin. It's a beautiful picture of a team working together. It's a beautiful picture of unity. And then he says this, look, 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 he says, not only stand firm, look what he says in us. He says, stand firm in one spirit, doing what together? What's the word? Striving together as what? One. Come on, come on. Look, 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 come on. You got a Bible in front of you, talk to me. It says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as what? One. For the What? Faith of the what? It's a beautiful picture and it means you're doing this together. It's, it's done in unity. It means life change is taking place. It means not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's taking a humble position. It's doing whatever it takes to be in harmony with one another. And by the way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. It's saying, it's we instead of me. Many Christians have forgotten that. They've forgotten that they're on the same team. And the one component in my mind that signifies unity is when we love one another unconditionally. In fact, the word of God says, they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Think about that for a second. What is that? That means we forgive one another. We accept one another. We see the best in each other. We treat each other the same. We keep interests, their interests above our own. We value differences. When that happens, the world will know we are Christians. 
And he says, I want to see you striving together. I love this word, by the way. And Paul, is, he, he uses so many metaphors in his the, the language, the original language is so rich. And sometimes you can't say it, but it's worth bringing it out to you today. This word strive, striving together. If you were to open it up and I would pull it out and show you in the Greek, it, it's the word soon and then it's athleo. It's, it's the word ath- athletics. It's the word where we get athletics. He's saying, I want you to be a team. I want you to be athletes together. Soon at Leo. It's the idea of working as a team together. He wants to remind them that they're on the same team and teammates work towards the same goal. It's, it's to contend against the opposition together. It's we're going to win this team event Together, soon athleo, be an athlete, be an athletic team. And teams that work together, win together. You and I have been parts of many teams. And in my case, in your case, for many of you, you've been parts of many sports teams. It's not always the most talented teams that win the championship. But it's the teams that understand their roles it's the teams that work towards a common goal together. It's not the team that pull, the individual that pulls away and says, look at me, I'm going to pad my stats. It's the teammate that takes his gifts, uses his gifts with the team and strives towards a goal. And if you're any f- kind of fan of the NBA, you watch that happen this year. Whether you choose to root for Cleveland or not. I was fascinated because last year I watched and I watched LeBron James and people hate LeBron, by the way. I don't understand why Christians hate people and I sincerely mean that. And I watched last year when, when Kyrie Irving, who's a guard, and I watched when Kevin Love, who's a, who's a forward, they were hurt and they didn't play for the Cavaliers and, and they were lacking some role players, some teammates that, that could step in and use their gifts and talents. This year, they had role players and those guys were back and J.R. Smith was there and, and, and Tristan Thompson had a great series. And what happens, they function as a team and they won a championship. And Paul is saying, soon at Leo. Strive together. Be athletes together. Be a team together. Shoulder to shoulder, back to back, sword drawn. Don't let anyone take the team down. It's a beautiful picture because individuals don't win championships. Teams do. And after 20 years of ministry, I've learned a lot about teams and unity and the impact that can happen when we stand together as one. Let me try to explain. Just picture, if you can, as, as this stick here, an individual, as one individual. By itself, it's, it's an individual. And to be quite frank, this stick, if it was left to its own, if it, opposition came against it, it would be pretty easy to win. If you had an army coming at you and you were trying to defend by yourself, it'd be pretty, you could snap it. Yet when you take one stick... And then you take one stick and you add it to six sticks, seven sticks, eight sticks. If you take this person and you craft them and graft them into the team, where it's soon at Leo, where, where you say, we're going to strive together. You can't break them when they're together. And Paul is saying, church, work together. Listen, use your gifts, abilities. Live in community together. Don't be a lone ranger. You can do more together as a team than you can as an individual. 
beautiful imagery that Paul is giving us here. Then he reminds us this. Look what he says next. Look what Paul says next. Verse 28. Without being what? What's the word? Frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. He says, he reminds them that opposition is the normal operating procedure facing a Christian. He reminds them that, that, that don't be frightened by it. Don't, 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 don't allow it to destroy you. You know this to be true, but it's worth repeating. Any great move of God in your life and a group's life will be contested. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want to see the gospel advanced. Any great victory will be, and any great a desire or goal or accomplishment will be fought by the forces of hell. Why? Because Satan doesn't want the church to gain ground. People have often asked me, and it's worth repeating, why is my life so hard and so difficult when I'm a Christ follower? Why is my marriage so hard? Like, when I said I do, I thought it would be easy. Like, I thought it'd be easier once we got married. Well, good luck with that one. Why is it difficult? Listen to me. Because you had an enemy called Satan and it's opposed. Listen, your husband and your wife is not the enemy. It's Satan. Why is it so hard being a Christian? Because you're opposed. And Paul said, any great move of God will be, will be contested. And don't be frightened by it. I love this word frightened in the original. Here, 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 here's what it means. And maybe some of you who understand better. It's the picture of a spooked horse in a corral. Have you ever seen a horse that's been corralled up that gets spooked? Like, you're not getting in the way of that horse. And he will destroy everything in its way so that he can or she can run. He says, don't be spooked. Don't become a horse that's been spooked and run away by, of opposition. He said, stand, grab the other horses, stand with them, and turn one horsepower into eight horsepower, and stand and defend the cause. You see, Satan is crafty in his attacks. He starts fires that he wants to consume your time and energy so that you get distracted from what's really important. Genuine believers are proved genuine by the quality of their opposition. Have you ever wondered why I think, man, why does it seem like opposition just continues to get worse? Because genuine believers are proved genuine by the quality of their opposition. Why? Because you are advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when you began to advance the kingdom, there is a huge bullseye on your life. Listen to me. Hear me out. Listen to me. This is important. If you're not facing opposition, guess what? You're not advancing the kingdom. <laughs> Listen to me. If, if you say, well, my life is a Christian, it's so easy. Like, it's not difficult. Then you got to ask this question. Am I advancing the kingdom? Because l l let me let you know something. If you're not making a difference, why would Satan come and oppose you? And the more you advance the gospel, the more resistance you'll get from the enemy. 
You see, true believers should annoy the world because they stand as a rebuke to everything the world stands for. And listen to me, why, 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 why? What do you mean, Pastor Jim? Because listen, remember when I said when I began this, your conduct, the word conduct is, is, is your place of origin, your home. Listen, our home is heaven. Those who don't know Christ, you know where the home is? Hell. And a person that's going to heaven that knows Jesus Christ should look a lot different than someone's home is hell. That's why, listen to me, that's why we should live in such a way that reflects Jesus so we can help change the home of people who need it. That's why. And so if we're living in such a way that our home, it doesn't annoy them, that the patterns and the lifestyle that we live as teens, as adults, if it's not different, and on some level it doesn't annoy. Now listen, I'm not talking you just get in their face and just be an annoyance. I'm saying they're like, how come you always choose that? Like, how come you never join us? Like, that bothers me. Like, or, or maybe it's like, you just think you're better than us. Have you ever had that? No, no, I don't think I'm better. I'm just telling you, this, this isn't my home. <laughs> my home is heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. And citizens of heaven conduct themselves in a way that matches their origin. See, there should be some level of annoyance because of the way you live. So Paul wraps this up. It's like, man, I'm like, Paul, come on, man. I went through two sets of steel-toe boots already in three weeks. Stop it. Then he says this. Look how he wraps this up. He wraps this part of the letter up. In verse 29, he says this. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ." Not only to what in him, what's it say? Believe. Believe, but also to what for him? Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Listen to me. Both faith and suffering are gifts from God. Oh, great, huh? It is. It, I mean, look, look. Belief is faith. And then he uses the word. Look what he says. I mean, th- this is beautiful here in, in the language. He says, for it has been granted to you. The word granted is, it, it, it's the Greek word charis. It's where we get the word grace or gift. And this word has a little prefix on it. It says, ex charisse. It means this gift has been granted. Like here, here's your gift. Here it is. He says, not only did I give you the gift of faith and belief, but I'm giving you the gift of suffering. I don't know what your Christmas circles are like, but ours often are, we, we gather together on, on, on Christmas morning, we sit around and, and then usually Isaiah or Hannah takes the gifts and puts dads and moms and Josh and Hannah and Isaiah and they're at the floor and we sit and we go around the circle and I've learned a lot. I used to just tear into them, but Ann's taught me a lot through the years. And, and anyhow, just, and so we, we enjoy the moment and, and you know, we, we're excited. We take time. And, and, and so the picture is, it's Christmas morn. There's dad's gifts. There's mom's. You're excited. There's your gifts in front of you. Like, they've been granted to you. They've been given to you. You open it up and it's like, oh, it's that blouse. And you're the girl. Oh, thank you, mom. Thank you. Like, you're so excited. It's like, I've been gifted. I've been escariste this. Thank you. Your turn comes around and you open up a box and it's, it's a box of suffering. <laughs> like, should I be excited about this too? Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, we're not. We want to re-gift that baby, don't we? 
We, 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 we want to keep that for the white elephant gift exchange. We want to find, hey, when we say, Mom, you still got the receipt for this? This one doesn't fit. I'm taking it back to the service desk, even though I have to stand in line for three hours Christmas Day. I don't want this one. It's like when you get a fruitcake and you want to give it to someone else. Paul said, listen to me. <laughs> the gift of faith and the gift of suffering, they're both from God. And guess what? They're both good. They're really good. They're really good. Maybe that'll help you explain the loss of your son or daughter that you didn't understand. Maybe that'll help explain why you're the only one in the workplace that no one talks to. Maybe that'll help you understand when that sickness falls on your doorstep and it didn't fall over here. Listen to me. Please hear me out. God grants S caris day to us. Both gifts. He gives them both to us. Because often the very circumstances you're asking God to change are the very circumstances using to change you. It's a gift from God. Let the suffering come, even its pain that's packaged with it. Why? Because it lets us conduct and weigh ourselves to match, listen, 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 match the gospel that we proclaim to believe in. And the gospel we proclaim to be in is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and suffering. Does our life match what we believe in? Oh Lord, help us today. This is hard stuff and a lot of this stuff we want to punt from. We want to re-gift the suffering and we just want the good times. But Lord, there's a beautiful picture of a church that's working together, that's striving together, that stands in unity, advancing the gospel. Because our suffering, it helps to advance the gospel. Oh, Lord, find us pure, God. May we be the church where our heart beats for you. May we be the church where we love only you and we are willing to do whatever it takes to show the world that you are the very reasons we conduct our lives the way we do. In Jesus' name, amen.